Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. It's okay, you know, for pre-K students to maybe spend 10 minutes doing a teaching part and then go sing a song about what they're learning and maybe in the, later in the day do an art activity. I started this back in last June and we feed our worms weekly and they're still fighting about who gets to feed the worms, you know, for the <laughs> week and they're still very engaged there is a statistic that 46% of schools in the United States, they have poor indoor air quality. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it from that aspect, it's a lot healthier, <laughs> you know, to get your kids outside and get that fresh air. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... I will tell you the reason I am such an advocate for this aspect of it too is just because of the mental health benefits of learning outside, the deeper connections that kids can make. And from my own experience, being dyslexic, school was not a very happy place for me, but I will never forget the day that my science teacher took us outdoors for class. And I was just like, what, what? And we went outside and he had this lesson. And I thought to myself. A drop of rain splashes across the big letter P on the cover of this doggy-eared guidebook before cursing down to the cover's upcurled bottom edge. It's yet another rainy spring morning here in Wisconsin, USA. The so-called Badger State is where Janie Black engages pre-K learners in environmental education. Janie is a certified facilitator with Project Wet and Project Wild. Mrs. USA Earth Eco 2023, and the founder of Green Schools Rock. She joined Ian to discuss engaging pre-K learners in meaningful environmental ed, common pitfalls to avoid when teaching young children, and how schools can become greener and healthier. Enhancing environmental literacy is central to the work of environmental educators, needless to say, and you do a lot of work with pre-k learners this is something we haven't touched on yet in this podcast this is a really broad question to start out with but what are some general tips you have for educators who are working with pre-k students and want to engage them in those really meaningful ways mm -hmm. it is very unique working with pre-k students so my yeah. students are four five and then like maybe early six during the summertime the thing I think that's most important is that we are engaging them in really meaningful ways. And for me, the most important part about that has been the curriculum that I use. So I've used a lot of different curriculum, but the ones that I'm really in love with are Project Wet and Project Wild. I also use Project Learning Tree. Yeah. But I think any curriculum a teacher is going to choose, it has to be really interactive and it has to be hands on. 
I actually have dyslexia. I have a son who has the same learning disability. And, you know, being a teacher, I'm really in tune to that every child learns in a different way. Mm-hmm. So with environmental education, though, what's so awesome is it is hands-on. There's that piece where you're teaching, but there's that piece where they're experiencing and they're touching it. And they are singing songs about what they're learning. And then there's that piece where you bringing it back home to them. So that would be my very best suggestion is make sure and find a curriculum that has all of those elements and there's no way you can go wrong. I have had so much success with my kids. So I would say just get a curriculum that, you know, really appeals to all different learning styles and engages children in many different ways. Let's dig in a bit to those different, I guess you could call them the project trifecta in a way, Project Wet, Project Wild, Project Learning Tree. Let's start with Project Wet. What are some of the particular aspects of that that you find really sync well with pre-K learners? So when you talk about, you know, water and you're trying to teach a child, for instance, you know, that water is a natural resource, that's a big idea to a Mm -hmm. four-year-old. What are you, you know, (laughs) what are you talking about? But if you start with the basics that water, it can be liquid, it can be frozen, it can be steam. And you go through, you know, hands-on experiments with them. Now it's starting to tick with them. What I love about Project Wet is that you can take their lessons, but you can break them up. So maybe you're doing, you know, a little 15 minute experiment with them, but then later you can also teach another aspect to that lesson. I don't know. Does that answer your question? (laughs) For sure. And Project Wild, I know, has a lot of similarities. Is it structured in the same way where you can sort of break things down into those bite-sized pieces? Yes. that and, And that's actually why I love it so much. And they give you so many like visuals that you can print out. I always tell people reach out to me because I will copy a lesson for you to try so you can see if you like it or not. I am a certified facilitator for them, but that's Mm -hmm. not the reason I, you know, brag on them so much. It's just because I've used so much curriculum in the past and this one has just been a win-win. Are there any particular activities, maybe recent ones that have really stood out as just really hitting well with the learners? Yes, you know, so many of them. But one I did is you get a beach ball, but it's a globe. You may have seen them. I just got it at the dollar store, blow it up. And what you do is the kids make signs to wear around their neck. So this was one piece we did in the morning. One side was blue for water and one side was green. And so we created these necklaces just out of like paper plates and ribbons. And they didn't know why they were creating them, except for I was saying, you know, the blue is water and the green is land and earth has both. So then we took the globe later in the day and we got in a circle and I rolled the globe to them, the beach ball, and they had to put their finger on it to stop it. So if their finger touched blue, then they would stand up and turn their necklace to blue. If it touched green, they would stand up and do the same. So then at the end of this little experiment, of course, there's more kids standing with blue. And that's where I explain, you know, that there is more water on earth than there is land. And we talked all about that. 
And that to them was just like shocking. What? You know, and that's a huge principle for kids to grasp at four years old, instead of just telling them they went through this whole experience and they'll never forget it. And they never have. They still talk about it. Yeah. I mean, something that we probably take for granted, like, oh, yeah, the earth is covered 71% thereabouts by water. You know, okay, fine. But like when you're four (laughs) and you're at that developmental stage, really comprehending like what does that even mean like what does 70 71 percent right the fact that the globe is mainly blue is certainly much more relatable for someone at that age well right but then you know the next thing so you're gonna try to teach them is why is it important that we keep our water clean Mm -hmm. and then you know you're gonna start teaching them about pollution and plastic pollution and how that is hurting you know, marine life, but you have to start at the beginning. You know, if they don't understand, they're not going to look at the problem in a way that they're going to after learning this, you know, that's a lot of water that's polluted. That's a big problem, you know, as opposed to trying to teach them those principles without laying the foundation. And we haven't quite touched on Project Learning Tree yet, is there anything specific to learning through a forest lens, which is actually a topic that we're going to be touching on in a, an upcoming oh. issue of the magazine, but is there anything specific to that that you found has really hit well with your learners? So with the Project Learning Tree, what I love is that there's a big portion where they do investigations. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of inquiry, a lot of questions, you know, does our school do this? And you know, does our school do that, whether it be about recycling or whatever. And so it causes us to have to come up with those answers. That's the aspect that I have used with Project Learning Tree is more their investigations. And I've used that also with my older students. I know we're talking about pre-K, but I do teach older students as well through my program, Green Schools Rock. But that's what I like about Project Learning Tree and the fact that it's a very inclusive curriculum their staff is all inclusive. They're all about that. And so, again, it's a curriculum that is appealing to every different learning style and every different child, no matter where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, that's just so critical and important. And I think, you know, finally, it is really becoming normalized. Yeah. Necessity for differentiation. Mm-hmm. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. The water from the raindrop creeps along the bottom edge of the cover, pausing briefly in a small crease and then abruptly dashing to the lower left-hand corner. Well, on the flip side of best practices, what are some common pitfalls for educators to be aware of? (laughs) Well, um, yeah. (laughs) I mean, at the pre-K level, the things that, you know, I'm challenged with is retaining 
a child's attention, (laughs) you know, and what I think the pitfall can be is don't set your expectations so high. You can go in with a lesson, but also remember it is student led. So if the child's not interested, you might have to switch gears a little bit. And as you're going throughout the day, you know, if the kids are showing interest in something, you know, like maybe jumping in puddles, which my kids love to do, then I know that, hey, you know, I'm going to teach them more about this and I'm going to bring that curriculum in to meet that need. But I think the biggest thing is just making sure that your lessons aren't too long and breaking them up. It's okay, you know, for pre-K students to maybe spend 10 minutes doing a teaching part and then go sing a song about what they're learning and maybe in the later in the day do an art activity. Don't put a lot of pressure on them and don't put a lot of pressure on yourself because the learning will happen. Just let it be organic, I guess, and natural. Are you driven a lot also by the concept of the emergent curriculum of, I mean, you mentioned about being led by the interests of the learners, of the students. Is that a pretty big part of what you do? It is because that is kind of also driven by, you know, what's happening in the world around them. It could be seasonal. A good example of that was that we were learning about wildlife and birds in particular, and that was so awesome. And we did a lot of learning outdoors. Um, But then I brought that learning indoors. We created a bird watching window. Awesome. And hung up bird feeders. And that was just incredible. They love it. I mean, I just can't even tell you how exciting it is to have those birds come up to our window and the kids get, oh, so excited. But that is a huge part of it. And what's going on in the world? You know, how can we bring that out? We did a pollination garden during the summertime and you know, learned all about bees. And that, again, was just driven by a seasonal thing of what was going on. Yeah. And I mean, that's sort of the beauty of place-based education. And especially, I think, in the temperate zone. I mean, I'm in southern Canada. You're a little farther north in Wisconsin. But we're in the temperate zone, mid-latitudes, where it's just changes the constant. And I know that it's like that to a certain extent everywhere in the world. In the tropics, you have wet season, dry season, etc. But I think in many ways we are so blessed in the temperate zone with the constant change and the urgency that that constant change brings. The fact that you can't just be like, oh yeah, we'll do that later. It's like, no, later is going to be winter. So we have to do it now. (laughs) Like, especially with something like pollinators where like right now we're recording last day of January. We're not doing a lot in terms of live observations of pollinators outdoors at the moment, but we will be in a few months. Yeah, it's very true. And it just, it could be too something that maybe they're just showing a great interest in. There's always a way to bring the environment into it because the environment plays such a critical role in almost everything. For sure. I mean, for our listeners, environmental educators, that that's just so foundational to what we do. I'm sure a lot of people are nodding along as they hear this. (laughs) Are there any things, any topics that your learners, the pre-K learners in particular, really are drawn to that surprise you or you think, oh, wow, I didn't think that they would really go for that. And they're just all over it. (laughs) I think one of the things that surprised me was, and this was just a part of, you know, turning my school green this year through a program, Green and Healthy Schools Wisconsin, is I decided to do a classroom compost with worms. So like vermiworm compost. And I didn't know 
how it would go over with the kids. So I brought all the materials into the classroom, you know, the dirt and the worms and they, oh my goodness, they were so engaged and they wanted to like touch the worms and there was lots of squealing and stuff too. But I thought, I wonder how long they'll stay interested in this. Well, I started this back in last June and we feed our worms weekly and they're still fighting about who gets to feed the worms, you know, for the <laughs> week. And they're still very engaged. They've talked to all their parents about what we're doing. And I know that because the parents talked to me about it. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I thought, I don't know if they're going to get into this, but they absolutely love it. And it's been a really huge learning for them that our scraps that we're eating, we are not throwing them in the garbage. We are giving them to our worms to eat and they're turning it into soil for the garden. Magic right before their eyes. I know it is magical for me too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For anybody. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just letting you know that a subscription to Green Teacher also includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles. The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 125 of those and counting. To save you time, everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Here, the water settles as it gains volume from additional raindrops. With space running out, something's gotta give. When you are doing environmental education, it does help when the school walks the walk, so to speak. You mentioned about the vermicomposting. What are some other initiatives that you've taken at the school to move it towards that green designation? Yeah, well, green schools stand on three pillars. So one is reducing environmental waste and impacts and increasing the health and well-being of the occupants. And the other is that the kids are more environmentally literate. And I get to write the curriculum for my students in my school And so what I first started doing was implementing that environmental literacy into their lessons every week. That was one. The other was the compost and what we've learned with that. Also, our school has two gardens, but they hadn't been used in years. Uh And so we have done that. We went through planting all the little seedlings and then planting our garden and getting food from the garden. The other one, too, is doing outdoor classroom time. So taking the students, I call it class in the grass and getting them outdoors (laughs) to learn has been key. And then things like making sure that we're turning off the lights, focusing on good air quality in a classroom. If you don't know, but you probably do, that indoor air quality plays a huge role in our health, our well-being, and also a child's ability to learn. So if the lighting is wrong, If the temperature is not set right, things like that. The Environmental Protection Agency has an incredible toolkit for teachers that talks all about indoor air quality. It takes you through this wonderful checklist. I would encourage 
any teacher out there, no matter what grade you teach, take a look at that. Go to the Environmental Protection Agency website. That was been really key and some of the work that I've done surrounding that. So those are just some of the things yeah, that yeah, I like, did. What are some of the infrastructure pieces in terms of the outdoor classroom? I'm just always intrigued by this because we hear mm-hmm. so much from educators about the various barriers just to taking your class outside, let alone having a meaningful learning experience outside. You mentioned about the school gardens. Is there anything else that just kind of makes that outdoor learning fit more like a glove? Yeah, and I totally get where you're coming from with that. And I I talk to teachers and the biggest obstacle is it's time consuming to get them outside. And then depending on the weather and then how are you going to do it? But I will tell you the reason I am such an advocate for this aspect of it, too, is just because of the mental health benefits of learning outside, the deeper connections that kids can make. And from my own experience, being dyslexic, school was not a very happy place for me, but I will never forget the day that my science teacher took us outdoors for class. And I was just like, what, what? And we went outside and he had this lesson and I thought to myself, this is what it feels like to have the connections go off. I felt like I truly was learning. I truly was engaged. And I see that in my own kids. So I guess my little hints to helping teachers with that is just prepare ahead. You know, we have logs that we sit on. We also have tables, like kind of like an outdoor classroom. So that's easy, right? But when we sit on the logs, I just bring, what are they called? You clip paper to them. Oh, like a clipboard? Yeah, we just bring clipboards. Perfect. This is the thing. The kids are more like adaptable than we think. And they'll pitch in and help. So again, don't put pressure on yourself, but I guarantee you, if your class is normally, you know, like 45 minutes long, even if it takes you longer to get out there and get back in, you're still going to have a more productive learning time than you will in the classroom. Kids need to be outdoors learning. And I feel so strongly about that because the statistics and the proof is out there for it. Here, here. I mean, this this is the crowd that's probably going to be agreeing with that the most. And you're right, though. It, it isn't just an ideology. It is backed up by statistics. And a quotation from an environmental educator in British Columbia, Megan Zenny, who's just done some really wonderful revolutionary work in this field. We had her on another podcast that we're involved with, Earthy Chats. And she said that in her experience, people are their best self outdoors. And for me, that just really encapsulated the whole concept. I love that so much. Yeah. And just a little side note to that, there is a statistic that 46% of schools in the United States, they have poor indoor air quality. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it from that aspect, it's a lot healthier, (laughs) you know, to get your kids outside and get that fresh air than it is maybe to stay in that classroom. Yeah. I mean, we might not be able to see air, but it sure is important. It is. Yeah. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats. And you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats. 
our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like Busy Bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Like a tiny dam bursting, the micro pool drains over the book's spine and onto the grass below. Small drops cling to multiple blades of grass in the immediate vicinity. Let's hear a bit more about your platform, Green Schools Rock. I perused the website and saw some neat stuff on there. But for those who are uninitiated, what can they find? Yeah, so the mission is to empower schools to be able to commit to sustainable actions. And I do that by shaping kids to be green leaders in their schools and in their communities. I really believe that to make true change, we do have to change the culture. And for me, I believe that starts with our kids. So training kids up to be green leaders, you know, why are green schools important? Why is it important to take care of the earth or be involved in environmental issues? So my classes are virtual and they're also in person. They're free because I want them to be inclusive, you know, for all children. They're for ages 8 to 18. I also do a lot of events and really Green Schools Rock is all about, you know, educating, educating kids. It's about advocacy, advocating for clean air for our schools and working with legislation on that. It's also about the Green Schools Rock Pledge, which in April will be a month of celebrating Green Schools Rock Awareness Day. But the pledge is three sustainable actions that teachers can take to be able to help make their classrooms more green. And you can find that information on the website. But that's really what it's all about. And I love to celebrate the fact that, you know, I do think that green schools rock. And I don't think that any child should have to go to a school that isn't committed to sustainable actions. Another here, here. I mean, that this is <laughs> ideally, you know, every day would be Earth Day and every school would be a green school. Yes. So that's quite an age range, 8 to 18. You mentioned about environmental issues that you touch on. What are some of the big ones? So it, again, it's very student-led. Right now I'm working with about 100 kids at a school in Illinois, and they are building an outdoor classroom, something that we touched on before, which I absolutely mm -hmm. love. They're learning about non-invasive plants and you know what to put in their garden, which has been an awesome experience. I always start out by asking the kids, what do they know and what are they interested in? What is a problem that, you know, really they would like to see us do better at and that they could help with? So I was working with another group, Plastic Pollution, 
And then they created a sculpture made out of single-use plastic and used it as a talking piece for their school to bring up that conversation. So it's it's just student-led, depending on what the student's interested in. Well, that inquiry-based learning model is gaining a lot of steam and traction. And I think so many people have woken up to just how effective that is. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And with me too, the, I mean, the age group is eight to 18. So obviously I'm doing different things with eight, yeah. eight to 10. Then I am um, the older kids, which are doing community projects and really getting involved in things like that, recycling programs. And it's just a different impact. It's a different learning experience. But at the end of the day, my goal is to make them green leaders and have them starting green clubs in their schools. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so you are also part of the Mrs. USA Earth pageant. I'll admit this was the first I had heard about that particular pageant. How is it different from others in the industry? It's different because our focus is really about the earth. Everybody collectively, we are all involved in environmental advocacy. And the nonprofit associated with our pageant is called Beauties for a Cause. It's all about environmental preservation while empowering women and young girls. So we all have service projects that we do. As a contestant, mine was Think Global, Act Local. Yeah. So that's really what sets it apart is that each one of us is really devoted to bringing awareness to different environmental issues and then helping to work on those problems and to make a difference. And you're certainly embodying that with the work that you're doing with Green Schools Rock and just in your day-to-day teaching and being guided by frameworks like Project Wet, Project Wild, Project Learning Tree, etc. Yeah, it's been just a perfect fit for me because it's just an extension of what I have already done and what I'm so passionate about. Well, any final thoughts, pieces of advice for educators who are listening to this and are thinking, huh, maybe I can try this with my three, (laughs) four, five-year-olds? I would just say whatever you're thinking, just go for it because it's such a magical age and they'll love it no matter what. If they don't, they're going to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, they're honest. Yeah, they are honest. And, you know, for any moms or dads out there, too, or just anybody, we have to start when these kids are young. So let's start this at this really magical young age because they're ready for it. And my students are leading their parents. And I'll end with this. It's a story I love. I've got lots of them. But I have a little boy in my class. His name is Leo. And we do Wednesday walk days. And one of the days we picked up trash. And so we did like a cleanup around the school and we found a lot of trash. And it made such an impact on him that his mom said, we were driving down the road and Leo made us stop the car. He said, can you please stop the car? There's trash on the road. And Miss Janie says, we have to take care of our earth. And they were able to stop the car and they picked up the trash. And she said, you have made such an impact on him. But that, to me, I share that story because each one of us can do that. So if you know a child, get them involved in something environmental, do a cleanup with them, 
because this is the age to start. I wish someone had started with me. I lost so many years where I could have been, you know, helping to take care of our earth. And I just didn't know. Nobody told me. So I guess that's what I'd like to leave with. A little piece of my heart. Yeah, don't underestimate the passions or abilities of the young'uns, even when they're three, four, or five years old. Yep. Thank you so much, Janie, for joining us for this discussion. It's great to hear about these initiatives that are happening. And as I mentioned at the outset, we haven't touched on pre-K learners. And I mean, they're as important as anyone else. So it's really great to at least delve into that world and gain some tips and advice on how we can most meaningfully engage learners at that age. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Though not exactly ideal for a paperback to be sprinkled with rain, it almost seems fitting that a Project Wet guidebook for water education is getting more intimate with the source of its teachings. This learning session is shaping up to be a good one. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. We've had people tune in from over 85 countries to the show. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Like all continents, you know, not Antarctica. I guess penguins don't like it, but you know, that's that's fine. (laughs) We'll get to the, we'll do maybe a penguin episode someday. Yeah. Get them interested. (laughs) Oh, that's funny.